Hi, everyone, and welcome to this new podcast, Luxury Insight in partnership with FashionNetwork.com. Today, we're very pleased and honored to welcome Erwan Rambourg, who's the author of Future Lux, after the well-acclaimed Blink Dynasty. Erwan is going to share with us his perspective and predictions for the coming decade for the luxury industry. So stay tuned and have an amazing podcast. Good day, everyone. For our latest podcast, we have a, a genuine expert in luxury uh, called, uh, his name is Erwan Ramberg. Good morning. Good morning. Good, or good afternoon, rather. Good Thanks afternoon. for having so, me. I'd like to introduce Erwan. He is the author of several noted books on luxury, uh, uh, most recently Future Looks, and before that, uh, The Bling Dynasty, Why the reign of Chinese shoppers is only just begun. Um, he is also a noted uh, expert in the luxury industry and a, a much quoted analyst and an experienced executive. He's been a, a marketing manager uh, for two of the great rivals of the luxury industry, LVMH and Richemont. Erwan is French, but speaks better English than my lamentable French. And so we're going to have today's discussion in English. Our focus is always about change and and uh, what's going to happen next, but I'd like to begin a bit with your, because we have a lot of young listeners, your personal career path. Mm -hmm. How did you get to become an expert and how did that begin? Um, so I basically had a, a few internships in marketing functions in FMCG companies initially, and then transitioned uh, from my first job to Guerlain uh, with NRVMH in marketing functions. Uh, moved on from Guerlain to Parfum Christian Dior, still within the LVMH group, um, and then um, shifted uh, away from LVMH into Richemont, into Cartier, to continue my marketing career. And then, uh, a bit randomly, met an acquaintance who became a friend, who became a colleague, who called me up one day and said, listen, you know, would you like to become an analyst on luxury uh, and sporting goods and spirits and other you know, consumer subsectors? And I said, not really. You know, I don't have any financial background. I'm not sure what this is about. Um, but I'm, uh, you know, I'm polite, so I went to have lunch with him. And I realized that it was a way to remain connected to the industry that I love, but with a completely different uh, focus. It wasn't operational. It was more helicopter view, uh, looking at business development, M&A strategy. And I've been doing that ever since uh, for the past 15 years. Started in Paris, moved to London, moved to Hong Kong. And now um, based in New York. One of your key arguments is that the future of the luxury industry will be defined by China. Uh, you've come out of your experience of working in Hong Kong. How do you see that huge influence of this increasingly important market influencing uh, luxury and fashion creatively and commercially? Yeah, so I, I think there's a need for speed. Um, uh, because essentially uh, lu the luxury sector remains essentially driven by recruitment. Um, and it's basically linked to human nature. You know, you want to buy luxury when you're young because you have, uh, you have something to prove. You want to be part of the club. Uh, it's all about, you know, social integration, um, hoping that by wearing this or that brand you'll be recognized, you might be offered a promotion, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the fact that, um, that the luxury industry is essentially driven by Chinese clientels that are very young, mostly female, mostly young, uh, mostly first-time purchasers, and mostly, you know, looking at different, you know, you have social selling, you have live streaming. This has been a, a phenomenal wake-up uh, call uh, initially for many of the brands in the sector. And, and obviously, you know, counterintuitively, COVID, uh, the COVID crisis has been another wake-up call to tell brands, you know, 
complacency is finished. You know, this is a very competitive um, sector. You need to get your act together. You can't postpone decisions about CRM, about the environment, about some of the tough questions where you thought, you know, we have time for this. I have other fish to fry. Um, this is the time for a reset. Um, so for me, you have to learn how to be quick. You have to learn how to be nimble. It's becoming a much more difficult industry, uh, but all the more so interesting, you know, because... Ten years ago, it was all about rolling out stores, and that's pretty basic. Now it's very intricate. It's about, you know, I, I worked at LVMH in Richemont, as I said. I didn't actually know who I was selling to. I didn't need to know. All I needed to know is, can I produce enough? You know, because the growth was such that you needed to have everything organized from a supply perspective. You know, now that's not the case anymore. It's, it's very competitive. Growth is more difficult to come about. Knowledge is power. You need to know who you're selling to uh, in, a, in a pretty intimate manner. Uh, you know, in the West, we talk a lot about Generation X, Y, Millennials. And I've heard um, many people talk about the, the most important consumer market in the world is Chinese Millennials. How do Chinese Millennials differ than the Western Millennials? We talk a lot about the Western Millennials wanting things to be honest, sincere, ecologically uh, correct, recycling, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, inclusive in terms of race, color, sexuality, how, how, do, how do they differ? Or is it the same in China? Uh, I, I think it'll come eventually. I think, you know, I think there's less of a focus on those values simply because of the reality that in China, you're looking at first-time purchasers. You're not looking at repeat purchasers. So when a lot of luxury managers tell me, listen, I don't, I don't know why we should care about the environment because Chinese consumers don't ask me. Well, there's a reason they don't ask you, because they're buying for the first time. You know, if you're in the market of my first branded handbag, your first question is not about traceability, transparency. It's more about, ooh, um, you know, which is the best brand for me to be part of the club? But give it some time. You know, there's, I don't think there's a fundamental difference that can be explained by nationality. I think there's a difference that's um, explained by, you know, the maturity of the market and the reality that um, if you look at the luxury sector today, probably more than half of sales are to first-time purchasers globally. So imagine what that number can be in China. It's the vast majority. Compare that to other industries, automobiles or motorbikes or, uh, I don't know. So, so I would compare it to what I know, which is more, you know, let's say sporting goods or spirits or cosmetics. You know, if you're Nike, if you're Luxitan, likelihood is you are selling to people who know you already. You know, I'll, I'll take the Luxitan example. They have a, a shea butter hand cream, retails for 23 bucks. Um, you know, likelihood is if you, if you discover the product once, you'll come back to it several times. Um, if you are selling at Cartier, Hermès, Chanel, whoever, likelihood is you're selling to people who are buying your product for the first time. So this has a lot of implications in terms of the role of online versus brick and mortar. It has a lot of implication in terms of storytelling. You know, it's, it's difficult to imagine that, uh, you know, luxury can learn a lot from Amazon. They can learn a lot from cosmetics. They can learn a lot from spirits, from sporting goods, et cetera, in terms of values, in terms of processes. Uh, but there are elements that are linked to the price point and the reality of first-time purchases being dominant that are specific to luxury. Um, I've attended, uh, you know, my job is to go to fashion shows a lot. I go right. four or five hundred a year. Uh, and in the big cities, Paris will always remain the number one, but Milan, New York were very important. But I've also gone to the seasons in um, uh, Beijing, mm -hmm. uh, Moscow, Sao Paulo, Rio. Um, and it always struck me that even though there are great ideas and you see talented young designers, that no real global brands have emerged so far. Mm -hmm. 
nor indeed uh, is there any really major star designer. Why do you think that is, and and what might change that? Um, I like your enumeration of cities makes me want to travel again. (laughs) Uh, I I would say essentially because first-time purchasers, again, mostly Chinese, don't think of themselves, don't, don't measure themselves, don't benchmark themselves uh, relative to other Chinese consumers. If I'm an aspiring Chinese consumer entering the world of luxury, my proxy is the New Yorker, the Parisian, the Milanese lady, the Tokyoite. I am not Chinese, I am cosmopolitan. And so as such, my reference point will be you know, Rolex and watches, Cartier, Tiffany in, in jewelry, uh, you know, Vuitton, Hermes, Prada, Gucci, uh, Chanel in handbags. That's what enables me to fit in. Um, so, so that's one, one part of the, the explanation, I guess. Um, the other part is I think there is uh, a lot of caution relative to what is not made in China, because Nike makes in China and everyone loves Nike, uh, but what is made by Chinese a sort of distrust uh, towards local corporates. But I think, you know, give it some time. Uh, the younger generation, you know, by default, everyone's staying at home right now. So, you know, domestic tourism is booming. Uh, the younger generation in China is getting to know how rich 5,000 years of history can be. Uh, eventually, when the world reopens, they might go to the National Museum in Taipei and learn even more about Chinese culture. And they will look more inward eventually. But, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. I find it interesting that, you know, Chinese artists have become mm-hmm. somewhat important. I mm-hmm. mean, primarily it's Chinese collectors. But there is, a, yes. you know, that, that whole area in Beijing where there was a farmer uh, armaments plant is fascinating. But even though China has become this gigantic part, which is kind of the factory of the world, it's not just in fashion. In other industries, we don't see the emergence much of Chinese. Even in, in, in flat screen TVs or, you know, or, the, or, the kind of, or, or electronics, or maybe iPhones are the, is the exception, you know. Yeah. I mean, you, it's true. It's mostly for now in staples, you know, in yeah. beer, in yeah. milk, in, in cosmetics a uh, bit. Uh. Um, but every time you look at, you know, premium industries, I think it'll take more, I mean, look at sporting goods, you know, uh, the market in China is dominated by Nike, Adidas, and a handful of other import, so-called imported uh, brands. You have, I think, 92 local Chinese brands, which are, you know, very much on a value for money positioning, you know, Anta, Lining, Dongxiang, Xtep, etc. I think it's difficult, again, for, uh, from a, a psychological point of view, for a, a Chinese consumer to accept the trade-up to local brands for elements of trust. It, again, it'll come eventually. I don't know if you remember, but when Hermes took a stake in Shangxia, um, which is yes. you know, made in China, and you had analysts like myself asking, oh, how, how long you, you know, do you think it's going to take for you to get a proper return? They, they, their answer was like, give us 40, 50 years. You know, that's, that's the sort of time frame we're on. So I, I think but it'll have happen. They, not sold, they sold... Uh... So they, yeah, they got diluted uh, because the Agnelli family, John, John Alcan... Uh, uh, invested. Hermes still has a stake, but yeah, yeah not not the one. Yeah, it, uh, Only it recently. Yeah. Very recently, yeah. Yeah, uh, which indicates possibly it wasn't such a... Which indicates that maybe patience is limited and Hermes had other fish to fry. Uh, today is um, Thursday, January uh, 7th, and uh, the news that broke this morning was of the investment in uh, one of the most interesting young uh, French brands, Ami designed by Alexander Machuizzi. Mm-hmm. It's one of the few new success stories of young French designers, who, of someone who's created his own brand. And a Chinese company, mm-hmm. uh, Sequoia Capital, in bought control, 
So interesting, Sequoia is not a terribly Chinese name, but they, you know, they're a very active venture capital company. And that's the latest uh, by a Chinese uh, mainland company, uh, uh, Foson International bought Lanva a couple of years ago. When I began in the industry 30 years ago, uh, there was a period when Japanese bought half a dozen brands. And, and none of them did terribly well, even though the Japanese had a great deal of experience, certainly more historically than the Chinese in luxury and, and in department stores and in taking control of licenses. Um, how do you see, uh, do you expect this to be part of a wave of Chinese investment? And how do you see that uh, rolling out? I think if you look at the success of the luxury sector uh, over the past decades, if you look at the track record, it's not surprising that many people want to have some skin in the game. So yes, I do expect um, Chinese money to be more active. I do expect private equity to step up. You know, in, in the private equity world today, you have a lot of cash and very few uh, areas to allocate that cash. And so you'll, yeah, I, I think multiples will go up because you don't have that many, you know, brands around. Uh, there's been a lot of consolidation in the space. I mean, t today is also the day where, when um, LVMH is um, announcing management change at Tiffany and integrating that brand. I, I think you have very few independents that are worth looking at, and um, everyone will look at them. So, you know, I, I don't think there's a specific Chinese angle here. I think it's just... I, I want to be part of this. I want to be involved because I know it's a good business to be in. To have a percentage of your portfolio in luxury. Yes, yes. I mean, whether, you know, whether you're a pure player like LVMH or whether yeah. uh, you are, like we, we mentioned, John Elkan, and you know, yeah. you're part yeah. of the Agnelli family and you're known for yeah. Ferrari and other automobile uh, brands and you want diversification or you, you, want, you want an in, you want to develop a veneer and understanding. And you know, you, you've seen that it's been very successful over, over the, the different decades. And so you're thinking, maybe I, you know, maybe I should learn about this. <laughs> uh, luxury has had a remarkable run for about 20, 30 years now. Mm -hmm. um, uh, not only in, in, in France, but many international brands, uh, certainly in Italy and, and to a lesser extent, maybe in London and, and Milan, mm -hmm. uh, and London and New York. Um, and outperforming other sectors, with the possible exception of high tech, it's been the, yeah. you know the biggest boom industry. Do you expect that to continue? And if so, why? Yeah, absolutely. And and that's actually the the gist of the book is basically looking at the next decade of growth post COVID. Now, you know, post COVID, if you're based in Asia, you probably understand what I mean. If you're based <laughs> like we are today in Paris or like I am in yeah. in New York, talking about post COVID is a bit awkward uh, still. But what I would say is I see phenomenal growth ahead. I see a lot of recruitment still ahead. I mean, if you look at China, um, most brands have a target market in terms of you know, the, the number of uh, theoretical consumers they can address that will likely double over the next four years. So you, know, you mentioned my, my first book was called The Bling Dynasty. I wrote that six years ago. And the, the case was to say, you know, growth with Chinese consumers is just in its infancy. Six years later, we're still at that point. You know, we're still almost purely about recruitment. And again, a, a phenomenal appetite, a phenomenal hunger. I think one of, one of the counterintuitive realities is three, four years ago, people asked, oh, you know, the young generation will have no interest in luxury. The exact opposite happened. It's the selfie generation. They're obsessed by their image. They're spending, you know, 10 hours a day on devices, projecting their positioning. And the brands they wear uh, are, you know, are supposed to uh, tell everyone what they're about. Uh, and, and that's where the role of Facebook, and more importantly, probably Instagram has been 
Paramount show. TikTok and, you know, uh, all the other uh, ecosystems you can think of that are more Chinese specific. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, I think image is key. Um, what's happened, you know, under COVID conditions is you've had a sort of tendency of buy less, buy better. Oh. So again, counterintuitive, but the bigger brands are the ones having the better growth right now uh, because you want the reference, you want the, you want the leader. You're not going to buy a second tier brand that no one's heard about because you won't get the re return on your investment. You'll be wasting your money. <laughs> That's a bit shocking. Um, <laughs> uh, you worked for a company, Rishma, which made uh, a major statement in December when it teamed up with Kerry and Ali. Alibaba um, and, uh, and Farfetched far in a rather unique uh, configuration of investment and linkage. What message, it, it, a lot of people took different messages out of that. The consolidation of the industry, the recognition of the success of Farfetched, the importance of technology, the China. What, what were the three lessons you took from that kind of historic kind of Three, moment? that's tough. Uh, <laughs> so, so yeah, one could be consolidation. Uh, you've seen consolidation in brick and mortar wholesale. A lot of people disappearing. What's happening in multi-brand online sales is that you have many actors that have been drawn by growth, but most of them are loss-making. And I think there will be consolidation ahead. Uh, so that's one lesson. The other lesson for me is that, again, talking about wanting to have uh, skin in the game. I mean, you know, Richemont brought over Yux Net Apporté. Not sure that's been the, the most phenomenal success that maybe they had in mind a few years ago. And they're probably realizing that uh, if they team up with Farfetch and uh, within the Baba ecosystem, maybe they'll get a lot more volumes, maybe they'll get a lot more data, uh, maybe they can serve their brands uh, better uh, and lift uh, what they have uh, for now. Uh, the third lesson I would say is you don't have to be involved in everything. You know, LVMH has a very different approach to multi-brand online retail. They might be selling some of their brands on the platforms, but they don't want to participate. They have a view that there is no long-term credible business model. You know, because they've seen Farfetch losing money, because they've seen Yux Net Apporté losing money, because to be frank, they have their own platform, 24S, which is tiny, but which is loss-making as well. So I, don't, you know, I think there can be a dichotomy between people who want to run brands and people who want to run retail. And LVMH clearly doesn't want to run retail, uh, even though they are running right now Sephora and DFS. These are not key priorities, in my view. That's a big bet Arno is making against the web, in a funny mm -hmm. way. I mean, it's, it's a view which I think held sway among the industry for a very long time. And uh, it was held by Chanel and, and Hermes and things. Is that really right? I mean, in an era when the department stores are dying out en masse, is it really right to assume that the consumer is only going to, the most internet connection he wants is click and collect, and it's not really uh, much more than that? I, I don't necessarily think it's the assumption. I, I just think the idea is I can sell my brands on retailers that I don't happen to own. It's the same for Sephora. You know, if you're not a, an LVMH brand, you're still selling at Sephora. It doesn't mean you have to own a stake in Sephora. If you're selling at DFS, you know, LVMH owns it. You don't need to have a stake in DFS. So I think the idea of LVMH is, why would I have a stake in a loss-making company? I can sell my brands there. It can be a distributor, but it, look at the margins of a brand versus the margins of a retailer, not let alone an online retailer. I think, you know, I think Bernardo, if you, if you see the margins at Vuitton, if you see where he can bring the margins at Tiffany, if you see potential at Dior, why not focus on that?
what about technology and artificial intelligence? Was the buzzword? It's funny. It's not so much talked about in the last six months, but it, you know, a, a year ago that was all anyone talked about. That was the driving factor in in reaching consumers. How do you how do you see that? Yeah, I, I think I think that's a great question, and it comes back to what I was mentioning about knowledge is power. Yeah. Uh, it's only over the past two three years that I've been hearing companies talk about algorithms um, and data scientists <laughs> yeah. and actually you know, getting this idea of you know, who, who am I selling to after all. And you know, I, I think it makes a big difference. If you walk into a Montclair store, they'll tell you, hey, welcome back, Godfrey. And you, know, uh, you were here six months ago and you're, you know, your, your son is, has his birthday in two weeks and his preferred color is green. And um, you might not want that, but you know, if ever. And, and by the way, you bought this six months ago. This will go well with it. Um, you walk into Canada Goose, even though you were there two weeks ago, they don't know who you are. I think that makes a big difference. It's an investment, but you know, whether it's AI, whether it's all of the algorithms, whether it's CRM systems, again, it all goes down to knowledge. It, it's not knowledge per se, but it's basically added value. How do I get an edge relative to my competitor? How do I uh, track you? Because again, as I said, I think luxury is all about recruitment today. It's not going to last forever. It'll be about repeat purchases eventually. And when that happens, if you don't have the data, you're toast. So I, you know, I think it's, um, it's, you know, it's good to see the industry recruiting from hospitality, from Apple, from, you know, it's a very insistuous, very closed industry. And it's gradually opening up because it has to. Because as Nike would say, the consumer decides you don't. So if the consumer decides you have to adapt, she doesn't. We're talking about the old Alibaba Richmond carrying uh, operation, um, uh, which happened just as the founder of Alibaba disappeared. And mm -hmm. that's been a lead story now internationally. It's also the moment when the national security law in Hong Kong is becoming enforced very dramatically. There's a question of Uyghurs. Do you think that increasingly, let's say, problematic reputation of China internationally, can that change luxury? Will that cause a reaction? How could that play? I think the way it influences luxury is you will adapt to what the uh, Chinese administration wants. Uh, and what it wants, even pre-COVID, is to basically develop businesses at home. So if you look at the emergence and the boom, uh, literally over the past six months, of Hainan, as a substitute to Hong Kong in terms of um, luxury businesses. This is basically driven by what the administration wants. And what the administration wants, the administration will get. Uh, and so brands have to adapt. And brands are developing stores in Hainan. They are looking at opening uh, you know, more uh, physical retail in mainland China. And they have shut already in Hong Kong. They are currently shutting in Europe. Again, this is, you know, this is beyond politics. This is just the natural evolution of repatriation of growth. You saw it with the Japanese clientele 20 years ago. Initially, when you know, Japanese started to discover luxury, it was all abroad. Pre-COVID in 2019, the vast majority of sales to Japanese was at home. China will go a similar way with one caveat, which is um, the reality that the, the passport penetration rate is very low. So when the world reopens, yes, Chinese will start to discover the world again. But I'm convinced that the bulk of spending uh, over the next five years from Chinese will be at home. So the biggest influence for me, if you're a luxury manager, is where do I want to put my investments? You know, and likelihood is uh, even pre-COVID that you had to think about my next store in mainland China and where do I need to cut, whether it's Hong Kong, whether it's continental Europe uh, or other places. Uh, that's probably the, uh, the biggest influence, I would say. Do you think uh, that could destroy uh, Hong Kong's 
historic role as the kind of financial center of the stock market of Asia. So, I, I mean, I, I don't have a view on yeah. macro elements uh, uh, from that point of view, but I, I would say that, um, you know, Hong Kong 10 years ago was the mecca uh, of luxury. Mm. Um, and I think the reality is mainland Chinese have so many other options. Uh, and again, this is pre-demonstrations, this is pre-COVID, this is pre-everything. I think Hong Kong, for having lived there, um, has struggled to diversify its pitch. You know, the pitch is, we're the best shopping mall on oh. the planet, and oh. it still is yeah. to a certain extent. But is that enough? You know, relative to the culture you can find in Japan, relative to the fun you can find in Korea, relative to the you know, historical buildings you could find here in Paris, Milan, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that by default, Hong Kong will continue to lose share, will lose relevance. It's still very interesting because it's easy. You know, the food is great. As I said, the, you know, the shopping environment is easy. It's a, you know, the, the site is, is beautiful. Um, but it's, you know, it has to have more to pitch to tourists. Uh, there was a, recently a, a huge uh, development, nonetheless, in Hong Kong. It's Victoria Wharf. It's by Adrian Chang. The K-11. A-11. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think that might turn out to be bad timing or, or maybe that's no. what, was what Hong Kong needed? That, that, I, I think that's part of what Hong Kong needs because that's a pretty edgy alternative fun concept, to be fair. That, that, uh, that shopping mall adds value. It's not yet another, uh, you know, block of uh, luxury stores. You have different types of uh, adjacencies. The flow is really interesting. You have stuff you can't find elsewhere. There is still some innovation to happen, uh, no doubt. Um, it's just that I don't think the role of Hong Kong can become as central as it was just a few years ago again. I think you'll have other places, again, mainland China, and then probably as the world reopens more, you know, other parts of Asia, before you think about Chinese coming back to Europe, before you even think about Chinese going back to the US, um, I think other parts of Asia uh, will be rediscovered or discovered. One thing I was very surprised to see uh, when I went to uh, Japan uh, about three years ago, a foreign uh, fashion junket that us editors enjoy occasionally. <laughs> and I remember going into Ginza and walking into, I think, something like a Uniqlo store. They have a 10-floor store to, to see what they have. And half the shoppers were Chinese, mm-hmm. I, which completely surprised me. That uh, is Ginza, yes. Yeah. That is, I mean, you, you might know the, the logo of Shiseido, yeah. which is Shiseido Ginza Tokyo. That, uh, when you say Ginza, you say you say to Chinese consumers, this is, this is where it's at. I think Ginza plays the role remotely of what the, the Galerie Lafayette play in, in Paris. Um, it is specifically dedicated to Chinese uh, shoppers. Uh, the flagships are, you know, uh, are basically set up that way. Uh, locals, you know, a bit like, a bit, let, let's take Paris again. You know, you have the Galerie Lafayette for Chinese travelers, the Samaritan eventually, uh, but you have Le Bon Marché for the locals. In Tokyo, you might have Omote Sando, for example, for locals. Finally, to go back to the beginning, uh, a lot of young people in our audience, what uh, bits of advice would you give to someone who wanted a career in luxury, whether as a designer or as an analyst or as an executive? Well, I would say don't let the short term depress you. Uh, I think this is a great sector to join. I think there's great growth ahead. I think there's a lot to do still in terms of resetting this business. Uh, again, you've had a bit of complacency. You've had a bit of you know, arrogance to a certain extent uh, because a lot of these brands have seen good growth, high margins, great cash generation, and have been a bit set in their ways. I think there's a lot to do still in terms of innovating uh, creativity. And certainly if you're entering this business, 
it's a great business to be in because you know I, I think the track record that you saw for the past two decades, post-COVID, uh, you'll see phenomenal growth ahead. Owen Ramberg, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.